Thank you for listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So, it is summertime though, and uh, we're on the cusp this week of breaking our 90 degree day record um, for the Portland metro area, and we'll surpass that if the weather holds this week. So with such beautiful weather, surely you have been on vacation at some point, or you've been planning to vacation at some point. Who's been on vacation before us? Okay, who's abandoned us? Okay, some of you have already done that. Um, who is going to go on vacation here this month or next? So, yeah, okay, so there you go, vacation. And vacation is coming or vacation has come. And um, my family and I, this next week and the week after, we'll get to take some vacation too, and we're looking forward to that. But this good weather and it being vacation time always makes me reflect on um, past vacations we've taken as well. It's a, it's a new era for our family because all of our kids now are young adults. And so to vacation together looks very different than what it did when they were, when they were little guys. Our kids are about two years apart between the three of them. And so we had three little kids for a lot of years when we would go on vacation. And for any of you who um, have had kids or um, maybe growing up in your family or even with grandkids, it is a deal when you have little kids to get packed up and to get everybody together and everything you need and then to head off somewhere to camp it's, or, or to do vacation or whatever. It's just it's a lot of work, right? It's good, but it's a lot of work. And our kids are just the road warriors. We just, we've done so many vacations where we've hopped in uh, what was our van and just driven for a lot of hours to get somewhere. And they, they're, they're golden. They just, they just were terrific kids. But they're kids as well, right? They're not perfect. And an example of that was one vacation many years ago that we were going to take to the Wallawas. And at that point, we lived on the west side of the city, so add an hour onto that trip. That's about a six-hour trip to get to the Wallawas. That's, that's a long day of driving with little kids in a van. And so we were going to go on this camping trip to the Wallawas, so we packed up our van, and I mean, it was completely packed up. And there was no room for anything but our kids and us and our 100-pound Bernese Mountain Dog. So the van was full. And so that being said, everyone's packed in. It was an early morning because it was going to be a long drive. So we'd gotten up really early. And that's always wonderful for little kids, right? It really sets the right mood to start vacation. No, they're tired and they're kind of cranky and it's early and we finally get everything loaded up and it's a huge amount of stress and what have you to, to get everything packed into the van. And so we get packed into the van and the brilliance of my wife, she's just such an amazing mom. But on this trip, she'd come up with the idea that since it was such a long trip, every hour our kids would get to open a little gift from the Dollar Tree and it was something they could do in the car and, you know, we had painted this picture of, hey, you have this to look forward to, and they were excited about that. So we've done everything to set the, the best possible tone for this trip. Before we get out of the driveway, it happened. You see, we were so packed into this van that one of our kids' toys was touching the leg of one of our other kids, and that was absolutely unacceptable. Your, your toy is touching. Move your toy. I can't. Then move it anyway. No, I won't and off to the races we go. We're not even out of the driveway and there's a fight, a squabble that's taking place with our sweet little kids. You ever been there? <laughs> you 
ever gone on a trip, looked forward to a trip, you're, you're, you've just gone through security and you're getting ready to get on the plane or you're packed up for the road trip or even, even not even something like a vacation but just a special meal where everyone's going to gather together or we're all going to get... And inevitably, a squabble breaks out and a fight breaks out. Now, let me ask you something. Is the one who looks forward to that, who maybe plans that and works hard for that and anticipates that, how does that make you feel when that happens? Pretty disappointed. It's like, seriously, can't we all just get along? Do you know how much we look forward to this time or what this is supposed to be and, and this is what's happening? And it's this exact kind of moment that takes place in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. If you were with us last week, Jesus is trying once again to help the disciples understand that everything has been building to this moment. Luke in his gospel has very deliberately been building to this moment when Jesus is going to sacrifice himself. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be crucified and then rise from the dead. And Jesus takes a ceremony, more than just a ritual, a, a rich symbolism-loaded way of life, a festival, a feast that has been celebrated by the Jewish people for thousands of years, and he changes it. Do you remember last week? Where he takes the bread that's part of the Passover Seder and says, this is my body, which is for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. But as we looked at last week, he doesn't really change it. He focuses it and fulfills it because the Passover always looked to the reality that a greater Moses was someday going to come. And he was going to lead a final exodus and he himself was going to be the ultimate Passover lamb. And Jesus basically in that moment is saying, here I am, that's me. And it says in that passage, Jesus had eagerly looked forward to this meal with his disciples. And he tells them as part of this meal, one of you is going to betray me. And this is where we pick up our passage this morning. So they begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this, who would betray him. And then Luke goes on to say this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Are you serious? Jesus has just explained the significance of who he is, what is about to happen once again, so patiently, so compellingly, so clearly explaining what is going to happen and why, and what do they do? They fight about who's going to be the greatest. After all they've seen, after all they've experienced, after all they've heard, watch how Jesus responds, because how he responds is once again a call to kingdom living. He's going to once again define for them, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. And it's a very distinct way of living. And that's what we're going to wrestle with here this morning. This is how he responds to them. Look how patient this is. Jesus said to them, you knuckleheads, no. Jesus said to them, I would have said that. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Now that word benefactors is important for us to understand because in Greco-Roman culture, it was a patronage type of system, meaning that the rich helped the poor with some strings that were attached with that. 
if you were helped monetarily by a patron, by a benefactor, then it was expected that there were expectations that came with that. You would give them political support, you would give them loyalty, you would give them favors. You were beholden to them. And once you were in that system, there was no way out of it. You, you were on the hook to, to serve that person who had been your patron or who had been your benefactor. It was always having strings attached. Every so often we watch this show on Netflix called Blue Bloods. And it is about this New York um, family who two of the sons are police officers, the daughter's an assistant DA, and the dad is the police commissioner. And he's this man of incredible integrity. He always has these social leaders, political leaders who are coming to him because they or one of their family members is in trouble and they seek favors from him. And they always say, hey, can you make that ticket go away? Or hey, can you make this, these charges go away? And he always says, no, I cannot be bought. I, I am not going to do that. And he always makes it an integrity issue because... It is. But this is bigger than that with what Jesus is, is asking here. This is more than just not being beholden to someone or this quid pro quo where I'll do something for you if you do something for me. No, no, no. Jesus is raising this bar much higher than that. He's saying, will you do something for someone who will never pay you back? In fact, will you do something for someone who has no means, no way of paying you back? In fact, there is seemingly nothing in it for you. Now think about this thoughtfully with me for a moment. When we do something for someone, do we expect something in return? On the surface, I would say no. Most of the time I'm not like that until I really begin to think critically about that and to search my heart. Really? So, an example from my life this week, or recently, so you're driving in traffic and you create a space for someone to, you know, change lanes or whatever. If we get down the road and I need to change lanes and that same person is in that lane next to me, I kind of expect them to do that for me because I did that for them. My neighbor who needs a tool, I loan a tool to him, but there is kind of an expectation that comes with that, that if he has something I need, then he's going to loan a tool back to me. And the more I thought about this, the more I thought, you know what? I do this a lot more than I think I do. At the very least, when I do something for someone, I expect a thanks or some type of acknowledgement in many cases and Jesus very directly is saying, yeah, that's not your motivation here. That's not why you serve other people. No promise of recognition. No promise of even a thank you. In fact, you look to serve those who have no way, no means of, of paying you back. Well, what would our culture say about that? What would our culture say about someone assumably like us, who does something for someone who can't pay them back or has no means of benefiting them or repaying them. Our culture would say, yeah, you're a sucker if you do that. Jesus says, no, you're a servant if you live like that. Because this reaches all the way back to the Old Testament and what the heart of God has always been. The Old Testament defied righteousness, and we looked at this in our Generous Justice series many years ago, but Old Testament righteousness, at the end of the day, is disadvantaging yourself for the sake of the worthless person. 
That's always been God's standard of, of righteousness. And Jesus is really sinking this point home when he asks them a question where he says, so who's greater? The one at the table or the one who serves? And the natural answer is, well, of course, the one at the table, the one who's being served. And he says, yeah, you're right. Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. What he's saying is, you want to live distinctly? You want to live out the kingdom? You want to live out what's been done for you? Then greatness isn't through being served. It's through serving others. A new position means a new mission. And he uses his own example. Now Luke doesn't capture this, but John in his gospel does. In John chapter 13, Jesus, at this point, wrapped a towel around himself and washed the disciples' feet. Is there anything more yucky, more gross, more disgusting than dirty, stinky feet? And what was the primary mode of transportation in the first century? Your feet. And what did you walk in? Dirt and dust and dung and all sorts of stuff that we won't talk about. And yet Jesus does something that you couldn't require a Jewish slave to do because it was so menial and so denigrating. A Jewish slave could not be required to do this, but Jesus does. He washes the feet of the disciples because greatness is through serving. That's kind of a hard sell. I like to hear thank yous. I like it when I serve someone who can reciprocate or who could possibly do something to repay the favor down the road. But Jesus says, no. That's not the type of service I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to live out the kingdom by serving people around you who won't say thank you who you won't get recognition or appreciation from, who can't possibly pay you back, that's the path to greatness, is serving others the way I've served you. Hard sell. But what does Jesus go on to say? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's easy to read past something like this, but what is Jesus saying here? How cool will that be to someday eat and drink at his table in his kingdom? And what is he promising the disciples here? You are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Folks, this is reward and recognition. What Jesus is saying here is you may not get any reward or recognition in this life. Sometimes you do, many times you won't. But you will from me. Over and over again, the Lord promises reward to those who will serve, who will love the way he loves. And this is a reality and a truth that has sustained and encouraged and motivated believers like you and me for thousands and thousands of years. But unfortunately, we devalue this. And we belittle it. We say things like, oh, yeah, that's another jewel in your crown someday. Well, that's real motivational. Yeah, who cares? Great. But that's not what this is talking about. I mean, Just to get a flavor of this, think of a time in your life when you have been recognized or rewarded for something that you've done. When you've been appreciated for what you've done. I mean, all sorts of things come to mind. You know, like, 
birthdays and Father's Day or Mother's Day or special gatherings or a graduation ceremony or some type of award ceremony. You know, I, I am just constantly reminded of just three years ago when after 18 years I finished my, my master's degree. Wouldn't want to hurry on that, right? 18 years later. But it was so rich to walk across the stage of the church where I had grown up in, and that's where I graduated from, my old church, Village Baptist Church, where I would preached my first sermon, did my first baptism, married Jamie. And to be able, 18 years later, to walk across that stage with a graduate degree, it was just so rich and so rewarding. As awesome as that was, as awesome as you can think of those times when you've been appreciated and rewarded or validated, what do you think it's going to be like for Jesus to look you in the eye and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Good job. I'm so proud of you. I love you. How powerful is that going to be? We had a memorial service here yesterday in this very auditorium and our Dave Christensen, one of our elders, was, was shepherding that service. And folks, and I've been to a number of services and been a part of a number of services with many of your loved ones where it's been a similar vibe, but this man, Joe Kozlowski, was so excited to go home and be with the Lord. I mean, tangibly, really. I mean, it was, it was unmistakable. You could not miss it yesterday that this man was looking forward to his reward. He was looking forward to someday being with Jesus. And I thought, all throughout that service, Joe so got it. And I so much want to be like that. Whatever it costs me, however hard it is, however difficult it is, to serve the way God is calling us to serve at the end of the day is so worth it. Even if it's not worth it now, it will be worth it someday. And that's so powerful and we can't just fly by that. It's reality. But... We need to be on the same page that although this is simple, it's not easy. And that's basically what Jesus is about to put in front of them. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. Boy, there's a lot here in these short verses. The snake is still part of the story. And Peter's going to fail not once, not twice, but three times. And here's the kicker. Jesus knows it will happen. He knows this is going to happen in advance. He knows Peter three times is going to fail him. And it says he prayed for him. How cool is that? He prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. And by that, it means it wouldn't end. It, it wouldn't be gone. It wouldn't be revealed that, that Peter never knew Jesus. He does know Jesus. And, and Jesus is praying for him, knowing that he is going to fail. There's good news and bad news here for us. The bad news is 
Satan isn't just going to come after Peter. It says here in the first verse, he's coming after all the disciples at some point. And the same is true for me and you. The snake is still part of the story today. You and I have an enemy. He will come after you. I was talking with, with someone from our worship team earlier this morning, and they said, this has been one of the hardest weeks I've had in a long time. And, you know, spiritual warfare has been all over it. And that's the reality. Wouldn't it be cool if Jesus prayed for me and you the way he does Peter here? Jesus knowing in advance that Peter is going to betray him not once, three times, multiple times, still prays for him. Well, the reality is we know exactly what Jesus is doing right now. And he is praying for me and you. Scripture talks all about this. Here's just two examples out of the book of Romans. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also what? Interceding for us, which means he is acting on our behalf. He's praying for us. Therefore, as Hebrews says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to what? To intercede for them. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus is interceding. He is praying for. He is advocating for you and me, knowing that you are going to fail him. And so am I. That's, that's amazing. Why is that? Because in this kingdom, failure is not the final answer. Failure can be redeemed. Let me ask you a question. If we had Peter's resume in front of us, and he was saying, I want to come shepherd your church. And we were looking at this resume and we see he has publicly failed the Lord and denied that he even knows Jesus three times. Would you hire him to come shepherd your church? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? But the other side of that is, who better to shepherd and serve and love and lead than someone who understands God's grace, who understands what it's like to be forgiven, who understands what it's like to be a failure in the eyes of the world, and yet who God has redeemed and restored. It's remarkable. There's this amazing chemical reaction that happens in the kingdom of God. He takes failure, and God drops that into a vat of repentance and reliance upon the grace of God, and out of that comes gold somehow. And we see him do this over and over again. And as much as I wish there were do-overs in the kingdom of God, there's not. I'm sure Peter wished in those moments when he denied Christ and finally realized what he had done, I wish, I'm sure he wished there was a do-over, but God somehow redeems and repurposes pain and failure and uses it to advance his kingdom. His kingdom advances despite it. And we know this happened in the life of Peter because we get to read First and Second Peter, different Peter than the Peter we see in the Gospels. This is a man who has failed 
and who has been restored and redeemed. This is a man who understands suffering because he's been there and he can speak to it because he's experienced it and he's experienced God redeeming it. You see, the reality is failure is neither fatal nor final. But for some of us, it's become that way because we've allowed the failures in our life to define us and, and yes, in fairness, they're part of our identity, but they're not our core identity. And here's another reason why you're going to be really glad you came to church today. It's not a question of if you will fail. It is a question of when. At some point, you and I are going to fail. We're going to fail in a relationship. Boy, some of you walked an incredibly hard path of, of failing in a marriage, and I'm, I'm not trying to add to your pain, but... It's a reality, or we fail at a job, or we fail at a task. Are we going to allow that to define us? Because we serve a God in this kingdom who redeems failure. And it doesn't have to have the final word over our life. But it's easy to miss the point here. And the disciples did. Look at this. Jesus will go on to ask them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sew your cloak and buy one. It is written, He was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, scholars are united in this final remark by Jesus that it's an ironic one. I mean, this is kind of a weird exchange here, and there's a number of ways of understanding it. But most scholars agree that what Jesus is saying here is, Okay, you guys kind of missed me on this one. That's enough. You're taking me a little too literally. And you see, I can relate to this. Maybe you can't, but, but I can. I'm a very literal person by personality. It's just how God has wired me. And I am profoundly amusing to my family. Because I miss them in ways that are just, they're, they're comical. I mean, by way of example, Jamie not long ago sent me to Costco um, to get some stuff. And she said, yeah, um, get, uh, get four things of lettuce. Now, for those of you who are Costcoers, you know that Costco sells things in bulk, and you also know that they sell lettuce in bulk. In particular, romaine lettuce comes in these packages where there are four heads of lettuce, right? So I get to Costco, and I'm looking at these bags of lettuce, and it's running through my mind, get four things of lettuce. So what do I do? I bought 16 heads of lettuce. I bought four bags. That's four things, right? I bring them home, and Jamie's helping me. Jamie was at work. She gets home. She's helping me unload the, the groceries, and she says, what? How many, how many things of lettuce did I ask you to get? Four. And how many are here? Four. No, there's 16 here. We're never going to eat that much lettuce. And these things happen all the time. I get home from work. Jamie's frustrated with the dogs. I'm, I'm going to kill the dogs. Okay, I'll go kill a dog. No, no, that's not what I mean. Sometimes I miss the layers. And sometimes I'm just, quite frankly, too literal. It serves me well in some ways, and it doesn't in others. The disciples miss Jesus on this one. 
They took him too literally. The point wasn't to literally go buy a sword so you could defend yourself. And Peter mistakenly will do that. And Jesus will rebuke him for it and he'll heal the guy's ear whose ear he cuts off with a sword when they come to arrest Jesus. But the point here is things are going to get hard. And that's what Jesus is telling them. You have been supported by the generosity of those who we've come in contact with, that's about to end. And this is why. Because Jesus is fulfilling prophecy and promise. And once again, he reaches back into the Old Testament and he connects himself to a promise there. In Isaiah 53, chapter 12, it says, he was numbered with the transgressors. What Jesus is saying here is, I am the suffering servant. Which means... By association with me, trouble is going to come your way. It's going to happen. This is about perspective and preparation for when trouble comes. Because Jesus himself said to all of us in John 16, 33, in this world, everything will always go your way. No. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If he's truly the suffering servant, then it also means that he is the God who suffers for us and suffers with us because he is the God who has given his life for ours. He is the one who has rescued us from a life of brokenness and sin and settling for that as what fulfills us when what he promises us is so much better. He's rescued us from all that. It's been 36 years since this happened. I saw some articles about it, and I went digging and became familiar with a story that I I really wasn't familiar with. In 1982, this is a picture of um, an Air Florida um, airplane, an Air Florida actually went out of business after this accident that I'm about to tell you about. In 1982, Air Florida Flight 90, which was a Boeing 737 like the one on the screens behind me, took off. There were ice on its wings, and the captain thought that it had been de-iced. It hadn't. The rest of the crew could see it. They asked him not to take off. He took off anyway. And because of the weight of the ice, the plane, as it was flying out of Washington National, struck the 14th Street Bridge. It couldn't get enough elevation. And the plane tumbled into the river. And of the 78 people who were on this flight, five survived the crash in the tail of the plane. And understand, it's the middle of winter, and there's literally ice in the water. It's, it's incredibly cold. And these five people began to scramble their way in shock out of the tail of this plane. And now it was a race against time to see if they could rescue them. Everybody else had been killed on impact. And there was a rescue helicopter that arrived in there. As I've read about what this helicopter did, he was an extraordinarily gifted pilot, not only to get there in time, but to accomplish what he was about to accomplish. He began to lower a a rescue buoy, a rescue ring, I guess you could say. And there was a guy in the water. His name was Arlen Williams. 
he saw the buoy coming down or the rescue ring, and so he handed it to the nearest person next to him, and they hoisted that person to safety. And every time the ring came down, instead of putting it on himself, he put it on one of the other people who were there. And so one by one, these five people got rescued. And when they lowered the ring the final time for Arlen Williams, he was gone. He was a hero. This was a man who had given his life, literally, to save five other people's lives. And I thought, what a picture of Jesus. That's, that's my story. And that's your story. And that is the story of the gospel. Jesus is the ultimate hero who sacrifices himself through his death and crucifixion on the cross to rescue us from a life of brokenness and sin, and he invites us into his kingdom as a result. And if we'll respond to that grace, if we'll receive him into our lives, then, then he promises us a kingdom. And that kingdom, once again, is available and accessible and is yours to have this morning. The question is, will you trust him? When he calls you to a life of serving others, Will you? Because we serve others and we serve him because he first served us by giving his life for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the reality of your gospel. Thank you for the hope of the kingdom living that you call us to. You never said it would be easy. In fact, just the opposite. You told us it would be difficult at times and hard and painful. But you are the God who empowers us to live the very life that you call us to. You tell us that greatness isn't about making life all about us. It's not about being selfish. It's about serving. It's about trusting you for the reward and recognition that we so often seek in this life but that you promise us in the life to come. God, thank you that you redeem failure. Thank you that knowing the many times throughout our lives we will fail you and even deny you ourselves, you forgive us and you pray for us that we will be restored through that. And Lord, thank you, God, that you are faithful, that you always do what you say you will do. And so we commit ourselves to trusting you with that again. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I so love that song and I love the truth and the reality of what we sing about there. And if this God's love has not overwhelmed you and captured you and changed you, would you please talk to one of us today? Because what we've been talking about this morning is not religion. It's about a personal relationship with the one true God. And if you're not sure if you have that, well, are you ever in the right place? The people around you, myself, our prayer teams, we would love to talk with you about this. But this is the challenge that I will give to you and the challenge that I'm looking to live out this week with you. And that is this. Who are you going to serve this week? Not just the people who are easy to serve, but the difficult ones. The ones who will not thank you the ones who will not appreciate you, the ones who will not acknowledge you, will you serve them too? Because that's how we bring the kingdom. 
Jesus in Luke 17 said this, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, there it is, because the kingdom of God is in you, and it's in me. So let's go live out that kingdom together. Lord Jesus, I pray for us that as your church, we would live distinctly for you, and that we would do that by serving others, even when there's nothing in it for ourselves. Because you are the God who has first served and loved us. And you empower us by your spirit to now live out this kingdom that you have called us into. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us and that you go with us. We believe you, we trust you, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. So go and live for him. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.